Um, and as I said, uh, you don't need to be confirmed, uh, but uh, this is sort of a prerequisite to adult confirmation if you're interested in that, if you haven't been confirmed before, uh, is in May. It's a great opportunity to sort of stand up as an adult and own your faith uh, in, in public. And you don't have to give a testimony or anything, you just sort of walk forward and everybody else does the talking, I think. Uh, we even just give them a slip of paper with your name and the, the bishop says a, a prayer over you. Um, uh, and if you've been confirmed in another tradition, we can receive you at that ceremony as well. Um, or as I said, baptism. That, that This is a, a good thing to sort of um, to go through if, if you're an adult and happen not to be baptized. And we try to uh, give you a fair amount of substance, though it's not everything. In every standalone class, there's so much more we could say. We're skipping the surface. This is sort of the tip of the iceberg to a lot of things. But it should give you a sense of like what the Advent's about uh, in terms of our theological uh, ethos. Um, next time, Brandon Bennett's going to come in and talk about the nature of God uh, and heresies that, that are common today. Heresy sort of sounds like a negative term, but... This, the church historically has dealt with false teaching. What's the prevailing false teaching in 2017 with respect to the nature of God? Bill, do you have a question? I mean, I mean here, this is my, when it, I was confirmed over at this advent for 40, 40 years, it's uh-huh. um, by late um, Bishop's Temple. Yeah, well, praise God for, for your welcome to be here with us. So glad you're here. Um, uh, what was I going to say? So, there, so there's that. Um, I'll be talking about uh, human nature, following that, who are people in light of God, uh, the grace of God uh, in the gospel and the lesson following that. What's the good news um, with respect to, to us and our salvation? Uh, Mark Ginolette's going to come in, who's a Bible scholar, to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. How can we look to the Bible as an authoritative document in this day and age? I think that's a question a lot of people are asking. Um, um, that seems sort of old-timey to think of it as authoritative. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll answer that, um, that concern. Um, Doug Webster will talk about, he was our preacher this morning. Uh, if you were at the 9, he'll be at the 11. Actually, quite similar to the sermon he gave today. I think the sermon he gave today came out of his thinking for this class, actually, where he'll, he'll talk about uh, the life of faith. Um, and uh, he usually exposits the Sermon on the Mount when he does that, by the way. Um, uh, I'm probably missing some. Uh, finally, I'll talk about um, the sacraments, uh, baptism and communion, and then we'll have a luncheon, not at this hour, but at 12.30 uh, at the very end of uh, this course that we recommend you come to because Andrew Pearson usually leads the dean's class simultaneously with this. Um, he, he can't come in and teach the choir's class, so we have him uh, come to the luncheon. Um, yeah, come on in. Good job. Thank you. Uh, so Andrew will lead the luncheon uh, as an opportunity to get to know him, and he'll talk about what's the vision of the Advent as a church. Where, where have we been? I'll give a little bit of history at that class, that luncheon. Uh, where are we now? Where are we going? Um, and we've been sort of hammering out what our vision is for the past several months, actually. Before I get started with this lesson, let me say a prayer. I usually bring in a collect, which is a, a, a prayer, a short prayer from our prayer book that I think sort of speaks to the lesson that I'll teach, um, uh, just to sort of get you acquainted with uh, sort of the prayer book tradition. Oh, that's one of the other classes, the prayer book tradition Zach Hicks will teach. 
Um, so let's pray. Uh, blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So I'm going to talk about uh, Anglicanism. You probably saw uh, that uh, title uh, for this class. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is because the Episcopal Church, which is our denomination, uh, resides in a sort of worldwide and historic uh, Christian denomination called Anglicanism, the Anglican Church, uh, and uh, really having its roots in, in England, the Church of England. Um, and so we live in, in light of, uh, of that tradition, and also I call it Protestant Anglicanism because, uh, at least around here at the Advent, we view that tradition as, as uh, inherently Protestant, uh, reformational. Now, a lot of people would disagree with that uh, around uh, the Anglican uh, Church. Um, I'm not going to, even though the word Protestant, uh, part of that is protesting, you know, protesting against something. And protesting is big these days. I don't want to talk tons today about what we're against, okay? Because I find that that's sort of unhelpful. What I want to talk about is what we're for. What does that mean uh, to be Protestant? And um, Anglicanism, you know, a lot of people, you might have heard um, uh, people talk about Henry VIII in terms of that's where uh, the, the, the church got its start. Have you heard that before? Am I speaking in a foreign language? Maybe you saw the Tudors. Uh, uh, <laughs> which was terrible, but but uh, <laughs> but uh, you, you probably are loosely familiar with that story. And I want to dispel that notion to a certain extent. There's some truth to it, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more. You know, in England, uh, the church existed uh, almost to the the very earliest church. Uh, the Roman spread of of the faith, at least in the, the third century, reached up into the England Islands, uh, English Isles. And, and maybe even before that, but at least we have evidence that Christianity dates back to the 3rd century in, in uh, England. And so there's a Latin phrase, Ecclesia Anglicana, uh, which is where Anglican uh, sort of comes from. And that dates back to sort of medieval times. Um, and uh, uh, so, so, so a lot was going on in terms of Christianity before Henry VIII ever hit the scene in the uh, 16th century. Now, it's true that uh, the church uh, was able to make some major changes uh, in the 16th century, um, and that's the sort of the, 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 the rumor that people talk about is not Henry VIII's divorce, because he didn't actually have a divorce, he had an annulment, and that was the big conflict in terms of appealing to the Pope in Rome to annul his marriage with Catherine of Aragon, and that led to basically... Uh, a political foreign and state battle because he was having to appeal to a foreign power in Rome to get a divorce. And his, uh, his um, counselors, who were bishops and ministers, said, we can sort of take care of this on our own if you'll just sort of break from Rome. But so much else was going on at the same time then. Um, uh, there was the, the um, this is in the sort of the, uh, the midst of the Renaissance. So there's a lot of recovered learning uh, for example, a new Greek Bible hit the scene with this guy named Erasmus that people were starting to study. Because at that point, I thought that was me. Um, at that point, everybody was reading the Bible in Latin. 
Um, and so now they got their hands on a new Greek version of the Bible to study. Um, and uh, so just new, new ways of sort of thinking were happening. Um, and uh, also a uh, 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 printing press. Gutenberg invented the printing press, which allowed information to travel uh, much more rapidly because they could re- reproduce it. I mean, you know, now we think you could re- reproduce it really quickly, but back then, I mean, doing the printing press, as slow as it sounds, it was a real uh, 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 marvelous invention that allowed ideas to spread. And there were also some other things happening in England, even back in the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the 14th century, there was a group of folks called the Lollards, led by a guy named John Wycliffe. Have you heard of him before? Maybe you've heard of sort of the Wycliffe uh, Bible translate, translators. Um, because uh, they wanted... Uh, the Lollards, who were the followers of Wycliffe or the Wycliffeites, wanted the Bible translated into English. But they were translating from the Latin into English. They weren't using the, the Greek original version. Uh, they had a lot of other beliefs, but that was one of them that's important for a theme that I want to highlight today, which is being able to read the scriptures in your native language to, in order to understand the faith. And so Lollard uh, was a sort of uh, derogatory term that meant sort of mumblers. It sort of etymologically sounds like mumbling, Lollard. They were making fun of them because they weren't educated in Latin. Uh, they, were, uh, they were commoners, sort of a populist movement that wanted to read the Bible in the native language. Uh, and these people were persecuted uh, as a result. Um, and so some of that stream of thought was leading up to all that was happening surrounding Henry VIII and his wanting an annulment and that leading to uh, a, a break uh, from Rome. Um, and uh, uh, what else do I want to highlight? Also, uh, Martin Luther. To, uh, this year's 2017. We're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation because in 1517, he nailed you know, 95 theses uh, against the church uh, uh, door, um, uh, and that sort of uh, started a, a movement of trying to, to sort of protest against some of the beliefs that were happening in, in the medieval church, which was deviating from uh, what scripture had taught. Um, so, so all that stream of thinking is happening all the way up to 1517, and then remember the printing press and that information from Luther and his colleagues are, are traveling from Germany into England. And there's a group of Cambridge scholars that were getting a hold of Erasmus's Greek Bible and, and Luther's new teaching. And they started gathering in this bar, this pub in Cambridge, England called the White Horse Tavern uh, in secret and studying this stuff. Actually, that tavern doesn't exist anymore, but you can go to Cambridge to the place where it is. And they have a blue plaque that says this is where the, the White Horse Tavern uh, was. Um, and then uh, uh, a little later came on the scene this guy named Thomas Cranmer, who uh, was, uh, eventually became the Archbishop of Canterbury and had a real interest in, in some of this theology and perhaps uh, putting the Bible in English and, and our prayers in English. Uh, and because Henry VIII had broken for Rome, that allowed for some of this to happen. Now, Henry VIII wasn't a fully reformed guy by the time he died. He just, his thinking started to change. After he uh, had his annulment from his (laughs) wife, Catherine of Aragon, he married this woman named Anne Boleyn, and she was a young Protestant. And they would do, as spouses do, have pillow talk at night. And she would try to get him to, to start to warm up to some of these ideas of the new learning, and perhaps 
uh, the English Bible is a good idea, um, and to allow uh, the the uh, churches in England to have uh, the, the the Bible read in English. As a matter of fact, they man he mandated that each church have a copy of the English Bible, and they chained it to the lectern in the church because people would come to read the Bible, and they were afraid that people would steal it because this was such a novel thing, you know, something we take for granted. Now I can, um, I can read it, you know, on my cell phone, and we have copies around this room, but back then, 500 years ago, this was a totally new thing, people in their native language being able to, to read uh, God's Word. And then finally, Henry died um, in uh, 1547, his young son, Edward VI, who was uh, quite young, I think like, gosh, like 12 years old or something at the time, becomes king. And actually he was, uh, this is one of the, this is evidence of how Henry VIII was sort of a, you know, he did some, some things that are counterintuitive. He allowed Edward to be trained, to be educated by Protestant tutors. And so by the time he became king, even though 12, he's still a bright kid, and he was thoroughly Protestant. And so he, finally he allowed some of the things that these guys had been wanting to do to happen. Uh, and so uh, one big thing that happened in 1549 is Thomas Cranmer published uh, for the church an English prayer book, which was basically mostly that version, a translation from the Latin into the English, with not a lot of edits. But... Even though it was merely a translation and some of the doctrinal things hadn't quite changed in the prayer book, that's massive to go from having a, a church that um, was worshiping and learning in Latin to overnight having it in, in English. Um, and uh, later, finally, in 1552, he, he published a second version, still in English, where he was able to to edit more of the, the, the doctrine. So the prayers... Um, looked more Protestant in, in, fla- in flavor. But Edward was a sickly boy, the king. He died um, uh, just a few years later in uh, 1553, and his sis- older sister becomes queen. You remember her name? Mary. Mary. Bloody Mary, like the drink. It's named for her. She brings the country back to Catholicism. Uh, and uh, during this time, people like Thomas Cranmer and some of his colleagues like uh, uh, Hugh Latimer and, and Ridley uh, were executed. Uh, they were burned at the stake. Um, and about 300 other people, mostly lay people, who were um, standing up for this faith that they had finally got a foothold for under Edward VI in a few short years. Now the, the tide's being changed with Mary uh, and, and persecuted. A lot of people fled into continental Europe at that time because they knew they couldn't, could no longer practice the belief that, that, that they had been able to in this uh, short period of time and went to places like Geneva and learned from people like John Calvin and, uh, or Germany and learned, learned from other Lutherans. As a matter of fact, before that, some of those continental reformers were being persecuted in their country and sought refuge in England, and got jobs at places like Cambridge. And now it was sort of a reversal. But Mary uh, dies just a few years later. She was only queen for like five years, but still was able to undo a lot um, and, 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 uh, and burn a lot of people at the stake, unfortunately. Um, there's a book, by the way, out there. It's massive, called Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, if you want to uh, read about this stuff. Um, I don't even think you can really get your hands on the full version 
is so long. You, you, an abridged version is enough um, to sort of get a sense of some of the most uh, common stories of what these people were um, standing up for or fleeing the country for. And then after Mary dies, her sister Elizabeth becomes queen. And Elizabeth uh, was queen for a real long time, 1558 to 1603, uh, 40 some odd years, 45 years. Um, and she is a Protestant. And so she brings the country back uh, to, you know, all this back and forth, unrest, you know, try to slowly make the changes under Henry VIII, finally get a, a foothold with Edward VI, but it's a short period of time. Then Mary either kills people, they go in hiding, or they flee to continental Europe. And now Elizabeth. Um, and uh, this is the period of 45 years where Anglicanism, I think, as we understand it now, was able to sort of, um, to, to sort of breathe uh, into new life. And, um, and to, it's called a settlement because it was a period that allowed things to settle um, religiously in the country. As clearly Protestant, though not extreme. Um, and, you know, she was also a queen, and she's got all these people in our country. She wants to make as many people... Um, happy as possible without compromising the doctrine. And that's a difficult task to do because they've still got people who look to Rome for authority. And they've also got a lot of people on the extreme end who, because of all this new learning with the Renaissance uh, and uh, Martin Luther and taking uh, these beliefs to the absolute extreme um, uh, and uh, th that in ways that we might not agree with, on either end, and then you've got the majority of the country that you want to kind of keep happy without sort of um, splitting the, the hairs uh, too thinly. And so a couple things uh, during that period that came out that um, I bring to your attention, and one of them we'll focus on today and throughout this course is called the 39 Articles of Religion. Have you heard of that, about that before? Um, it's a, uh, and I'll just pass this around actually. But as I pass things around, don't flip through it yet, uh, because then you won't listen to what I'm saying for a few minutes. Uh, just take it and hold it, and we'll, then we'll start to look at it. Um, the 39 Articles of Religion is a, a, a pithy confession of faith. Uh, pithy, I don't mean in a negative sense. I mean almost in a positive sense, because it's, they're, they're short. You know how difficult it is to write something really briefly and get across what you're trying to say? Have you tried to do that before? even with things much more innocuous, like for your business, but with matters of faith and short paragraph or two-paragraph statements that are memorizable. Because even though they had a printing press, it's still expensive to print things. Um, so this, is, uh, this isn't everything, but it's, it, it is, in a certain extent, to a certain extent, enough to get started with, um, and more than often people talk about and want to believe. So this is a confession, a historic confession of faith for Anglicanism. Actually, the Westminster Confession for Presbyterians, you've probably heard of that before, was an attempt to, it was actually based on the 39 Articles of Religion. It was an attempt to expand it. So uh, the 39 Articles of Religion is in the background of English-speaking uh, Presbyterianism. Another uh, document that came out during the Elizabethan period was a book of homilies, uh, the preacher, the, the priests at the time were uh, uneducated, 
Um, and many of them were not trusted doctrinally. They were trained uh, by uh, the, the Roman church. And basically, you know, at the time, if someone were ordained to a priest at their ordination, they were given uh, for a gift, and we still get gifts at our ordinations now, a patent, which is a plate, and a chalice, the cup, for communion. Basically saying, your job as a priest is to do what? Is, is sacramental. And that's the main thing. So you've got the magic hands now. You can stand at the altar and turn it into the body and blood of Christ. And so that was like the main emphasis. There wasn't much thought about being educated and being able to preach. Now with uh, Cranmer, he changed it so when the priest was ordained, he got what? A Bible, which is saying this is your primary job is to teach and preach this stuff and base everything you do, including the sacraments, on what's found in this book. Um, and so the, the, the priests couldn't barely preach. So they wrote a book of homilies, and if they didn't have a license to preach, even though they were a priest, they had to be licensed secondarily to preach if, once they were trusted. They had this book that they could read from the pulpit. Uh, and sometimes you, back then in the, in the Elizabethan period, if you went to church, that's what the priest was reading from the pulpit, was these published book of homilies. So there's doctrine there. And the other one is in the, the ordinal, which is the ordination rites for the deacons, priests, and, and bishops, um, uh, which are oaths that we take, um, saying this, these are the things that we will do and believe and stand by. Um, and the problem is, uh, historically, people have submitted to those oaths and sort of almost like with their fingers crossed behind their back. Because it's, it's strange if you, if you meet some folks, or even to this day, or read some things that were written in the past several hundred years, these, these were people who uh, submitted to what, what is written in the ordinal, and yet their practice seemed to be uh, contradictory. But those are sort of the three foundational documents of Anglicanism uh, in terms of doctrine uh, that you could still read to this day, and the most accessible is the 39 articles. That'll give you a real good sense of what, what we're all about. Uh, and the Advent looks to those, uh, those uh, historic formularies, uh, especially the 39 articles in terms of our uh, teaching and preaching. And uh, so uh, let's just uh, take a look at, this is, uh, it, by the way, if, in your prayer book, uh, if, if you look in church or if you have one at home, at the very back, you can flip back and there's under historic documents, there are the 39 articles of religion uh, and they're written in the Elizabethan language, which... It's still pretty understandable, but there are some phrases that you're like, what, what are they talking about? I've got to read this like seven times. Um, so back, I think, in the 70s, uh, this South African scholar, um, he, he, he tried as hard as possible not to change the doctrine, but to, to clean up the language for modern ears. And so that's what I've handed out here. Uh, let me just read this quote, though, on the very first page from uh, George Whitfield, uh, who was an 18th century... Um, uh, minister uh, during the, the Great Awakening, um, and who's from England but traveled all along the eastern seaboard and in the United States, uh, proclaiming the gospel from church to church. Uh, and this is what he said about, he was an Anglican at the Church of England. This is what he says about the 39 Articles of Religion. I keep close to her, uh, the Church of England's articles and homilies, which if my opposers did, we should not have so many dissenters from her. But it is most notorious that for the iniquity of the priests and land, uh, the land mourns, we have preached and lived many sincere persons out of our communion. 
I have now uh, conversed with several of the best of all denominations. Many of them uh, solemnly protest that they went from the church because they could not find food for their souls. Uh, they stayed among us till they were starved out. Basically, he's saying there are a lot of people who have left Anglicanism, unfortunately, because people weren't practicing the doctrine that we hold uh, near and dear. Uh, and so that's why we want to make it central to our inquirers classes to pass this tradition on that has been lost even back in the 18th century and is still uh, being lost uh, to this day. How am I doing on time? I'm short on time. I wanted to leave some time for Q&A. But basically, the, um, the way it breaks down is uh, there are three major sections of the 39 articles. It doesn't have this in the headings, but the first eight or what could be called Catholic or universal articles. The idea is these are basically the things that most Christians historically have always believed. And the reason they did this in the Reformation is because a lot of uh, the Reformation church was being accused of deviating from Christianity altogether. And, and they were saying, no, look, we still believe the same things that, that the church has believed uh, since the earliest days about the nature of God and what scripture is. And then turning at, page, at Article 9, and this is the bulk of the document, 9 through, I think, 34, are what could be called the uh, Reformational or uh, Protestant uh, articles. Now, this document of 39 articles isn't everything. There's so much more we could say about Christianity. But at the time, they were responding to what was happening in their day. Um, and... Uh, a lot that we respond to now could be quite similar, though there are some differences. Um, and so we'll try to fill out some of those holes here in the class. And then the, the, the final articles, uh, really 35 and 37, um, are what could be called Anglican articles. And 38 and 39 are sort of an, uh, uh, what do you call it, like, almost like an appendix to Article 37, which talks about the church and the state. But there are three kind of themes uh, about Anglicanism that um, come out in the articles, come out in the historic Protestant tradition of it that I want to highlight for you. Number one is scripture, uh, uh, the Bible. Now, if you flip through the articles, even the ones that aren't about scripture, you'll see basically every single one says, as it says in Holy Scripture, or references, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as it says in God's Word. Uh, basically, like every single article is based on Scripture. That that is the, the, the fountainhead. That, that's the thing that we always go back to. The second major theme that I want to highlight about Anglicanism is it's about grace, the gospel, uh, God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Um, uh, not because of our own works or doings, but because of his work for us, that we get his grace. And you can primarily see that in the article uh, number 11 on justification. And the ones following that are sort of the questions that are commonly asked about justification. So we'll talk about that in one of the lessons. So the Bible or scripture and, and the grace of God, the gospel. Those are the two big themes uh, in, in theologically in Anglicanism. And there's a third one I want to highlight, which is about practice, which is language, English. The vernacular. Remember the Lollards? How can you understand a faith if it's being communicated to you in a faith that you cannot understand? Actually, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. Um, 
And not just the language, but an understanding of the surrounding cultural context that we're in. The modern 20th century uh, 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 theological phrase that we created for this idea is contextualization, which is a good, under, uh, good thing to think about. How do we share the faith in 2017 in Birmingham, Alabama? Actually, that's an inherent idea to Anglicanism. I'm going to read to you a quote, and I'll end with this, and we could do some uh, Q&A. And, actually, and, th- and those ideas come out in the 39 Articles, where it talks about ministering in a language that people can understand, for example. Um, th- this, this idea of contextualization goes all the way back. Um, uh, I talked about the sort of prehistory of the English church. Um, uh, one big figure in the earliest church in, in England was a guy named Augustine. Not Augustine of Hippo, Augustine of Canterbury. Um, and the Pope at the time, Pope Gregory, sent him uh, to Canterbury to be a missionary. And this is what Pope Gregory told Augustine of Canterbury uh, when he was about to go to England. Um, uh, he's, and here, so here's the author of this book, says, uh, his introduction, and then I'll read the quote. Historians have rightly stressed the wisdom of Pope Gregory's famous letter to Augustine, in which he advises him not necessarily to impose upon the newly formed Church of the English all the usages and customs with which uh, he had been familiar in Rome. Don't take the things in Rome and just sort of cookie-cut or bring them to England and think it's going to work. Okay, that's the, So that's the preface to this quote. And here's the quote. For things are not to be loved uh, for the sake of places, but places for the sake of good things. Choose, therefore, from every church those things that are pious, religious, and upright. And when you have, as it were, made them up into one body, let the minds of the English be accustomed thereunto. Basically, he's saying, pay attention. You know, pay attention to your cultural surroundings so that you can pray and teach and preach in a way that's understandable to the people. Don't like the, be like a colonist uh, and, and, and take your culture and, and confuse that with Christianity uh, if it's not necessarily the same thing and impose it upon the people. Actually, that will alienate them. And this is an, an idea that I think is inherent to Anglicanism. And that's why the prayer book is so... Uh, amazing for us because it was the first time such a massive endeavor was, was translated into our native language. Not only that, our language that we speak now is largely influenced by the Book of Common Prayer. Do you know that? You realize that? Because that's that was shaping the English language. So when we read this stuff and pray it, it it's it's like I think it's kind of like bone of my bone, bone flesh of my flesh. It, 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 it's understandable to us because it's in a language we can understand, but it's also the thing that has shaped our spoken language. Um, so scripture, the grace of God, and sort of, you could say, vernacular uh, or contextualization uh, are three uh, big ideas for Anglicanism. <coughs> I've, I've gone too long. I'm trying to leave time for Q&A. Maybe if, if you have to go to the 11, uh, feel free to leave at any time. Can we go till 10.55 if, if anybody has any questions? I hope you do. Uh, and then we could, we, could, we could really end it at 10.55 or real close to the nave if you want to go to church at 11. Any, um, any uh, discussion about anything? Yeah. Am I remembering correctly that during... 
Yeah, so the Book of Common Prayer first got its, uh, it was first published under her uh, younger brother, Edward, in 1549, and uh, updated in 1552, Mary came to power and got rid of it. It was illegal to use the prayer book. They wanted the mass back in Latin. So when she came back in power, the Book of Common Prayer was reinstated in 1559. It was basically the 1552 prayer book. Uh, just uh, a few things changed, but um, uh, brought back into practice. It's been updated in England a couple other times, 1604, and finally in 1662. And that's the one that the Anglican Communion is most familiar with worldwide. It's actually the 1662 prayer book. Is, uh, and, and, and that came about because the Puritans were in power for a long time, and they made the prayer book illegal uh, after the, the English Civil War. Um, but the, then the uh, King Charles II came back into power and uh, again, almost like a re, <laughs> sort of a, 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 quite similar to Mary, but on the other end of the spectrum, right? Uh, the prayer book was, was brought back and that's still the legal prayer book because the church and state are not separated in, in England uh, because it would take an act of parliament to create a new prayer book in England. And this is fascinating. In 1928, they tried to pass a new prayer book Here's another theme I want to highlight. Um, it's not one of the three sort of, I, I don't want to call it pillars. They're themes that I've recognized about Anglicanism. But here's another thing that I see. In 1928, um, some folks tried to pass a new prayer book in England, but it was, it was ritualizing. It was looking back to the medieval church. It was bringing back some things that were unhelpful, that people like Cranmer, Latimer, and, and, and Ridley died at the stake fighting against. And the parliament in England said no. Where the church was trying to change, parliament, the state, said no. And so in England, at least you could say, it's kind of a good thing that it takes an act of parliament, at least it was then, um, to change it. And so that's still the legal prayer book in England. And um, as the English-speaking world came to the United States, that's the prayer book that the English colonists uh, brought to, 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 to the Americas. So which yeah. other denominations use the prayer book? Well, um, anything that has sort of uh, splintered off of the Church of England uh, has sort of um, some semblances of the Book of Common Prayer. For instance, Methodism. Um, and as a matter of fact, John Wesley um, uh, died an Anglican priest. Uh, the Methodist Church really got uh, its start as a separate denomination right about when he died. Uh, so there are some things that are kind of inherent to the Methodist tradition that draw from the Book of Common Prayer. And increasingly in the 20th century and now now, more and more people, when they're looking for something, a, a formalized prayer in the English language, where do they naturally look? They look to the Book of Common Prayer. So you're seeing more and more Presbyterians, non-denominational folks, uh, picking up the prayer book and... By the way, the most plagiarized liturgical prayer uh, prayers are are, are are wedding ceremony. That's why every movie, the minister, no matter his tradition, starts with what? Dearly beloved. That's the Book of Common Prayer uh, because it's uh, because it's so good. Um, and a lot of people too, when they're looking for funeral rites, will look to the Book of Common Prayer, even if they're from another denomination. And it's kind of come full circle where. <clears throat> the Book of Common Prayer is actually influencing some Roman Catholic translations into English because the, 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 the phraseology is so good sometimes. 
any other um, thoughts or questions? Well, uh, uh, let's, uh, as we de depart, let's just uh, say a quick prayer, and I hope you'll feel free to, to stick around afterwards if you don't have anywhere to go to, to, to get to know each other a little bit better. There's still some coffee over there. Uh, and if you haven't signed in um, the, the, the sign-in sheet there, we use that to stay in touch with you during this period. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for um, the so many people uh, who've come before us uh, from whom we can learn, even as far back as Augustine of Canterbury and the Reformers and those who've lived uh, in light of their teaching and preaching, always looking back to, to Holy <coughs> Scripture um, for uh, uh, authority and direction. Uh, help us uh, here at the Advent and in the city of Birmingham uh, to make this faith uh, make sense uh, to to uh, uh, our, our fellow brothers and sisters here uh, where you have placed us. All these things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.